In the time between when I first recorded this conversation with our guest, Carla McCanders, and now when I am recording this little piece introducing it, the president has said more racist stuff. I am confident that between the time when I am recording this piece saying he said more racist stuff and whenever you are hearing it, he will have said even more racist stuff. A lot of it, in the past few days at least, has been about African Americans, including some attacks on Congressman Elijah Cummings and the city of Baltimore. But a big part of the conversation when we talk about bigotry, this administration, our political culture right now, it's about immigration. The Trump White House, by the way, is trying to pit communities against each other. They're arguing that benefits for minority groups are being gobbled up by illegal immigrants. Now, that is untrue, but it is particularly pernicious because this administration has cut benefits across the board for people of every color. Now, immigration is likely to remain a big topic during the debates this week, and that's why I wanted to make sure that we had this conversation and we put it out because the Democratic primary debates for president in Detroit on CNN we're going to be having special coverage, including at Local 16 here in Washington, D.C., Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. If you are in Washington and you're able to come down, please, we would love to see you at Local 16. You can watch the debates. They're going to have it on a big screen upstairs. We will have conversation before and after the debates both night. We even have some comedians lined up. There will be an edited version of that conversation available for everyone. But starting this week, the full version, the entire program of these live events and lots of other benefits, you can look for our Patreon online. We should have that up by the time you are hearing this. I am definitely sure that the president will have said more racist stuff by then. I am mostly sure that I will have gotten my stuff together and put up the Patreon. At Jared Rizzi on Twitter, where you can continue to suggest benefits that you would like to see, because I already have a lot of fun ideas, but I'm sure if you are listening to this conversation, you may have some as well. Carla McAnders is a professor of law at Vanderbilt University Law School. She directs the Immigration Practice Clinic and teaches refugee and immigration law. Thank you for spending some time with me, Professor McAnders. No problem at all. Glad you're having me. I want to start with uh, a real problem in the community where you are. Just a few days ago, about, uh, I guess, 20 minutes drive east of the Vanderbilt campus, in a Nashville suburb of Hermitage, Tennessee, a community rallied around a neighbor to prevent ICE from apprehending a father and son. And this made national news. This, this, these people literally rallied around him, formed a human chain, brought food and water, kept the standoff going for hours until ICE left the scene. Let me ask you, how did we get to this point with our immigration system? Um, I think that our immigration system has um, been in crisis for you know many years. You know, prior to the current president, we have had you know in 2014 a surge of unaccompanied minors um, from Central America um, applying for asylum at the border. Um, we know that our immigration laws, the Immigration and Nationality Act, is um, fragmented and it needs you know updating so that our policies are aligned with um, the realities of who are who, who the individuals that are coming to our country. And I think that what is key here is that since the uh, current president has been in office, he has exacerbated an already broken system. And he has done this by, you know, trying to, you know, the laws that we do have in place, trying to go around them, 
and, you know, not pro- provide due process protections for, you know, individuals who are applying for asylum at the border. And in doing so, he has, you know, created, you know, a large, you know, humanitarian crisis and in the process has, you know, separated families, has, you know, created policies that are not aligned with the Immigration and Nationality Act, with the Migration Protection Protocols. And I think this last, you know, instance where we see, um, the you know, the president and the administration saying they're going to conduct immigration raids, it's, you know, again, you know, furthering this, you know, creation of fear uh, to get migrants uh, to self-deport or to deter individuals from coming to the border. And in the process, what you're witnessing your son and the father outside of Nashville, Tennessee, is, you know, the ex- trying to execute, you know, arrest of immigrants without, you know, following the proper procedures. Eventually, I feel like ICE is going to either feel or be empowered to break these chains to these human chains. They're, they're going to go beyond We've certainly seen a willingness, for example, uh, to to flout official policy uh, in other places around the country. What happens then? Is that the tipping point or are we already well past a tipping point? Um, I think we are past a tipping point, And I think the actions of the, the neighbors in forming the human chain is evidence that we are at a tipping point or past the tipping point. And when you see that a collective of neighbors gathering together and saying, you know, you know, this is not right. You have a son and you have a father and, you know, you have to follow the part. There is no I don't know from reading the news articles whether they had a proper warrant to enter the place um, to, um, you know, take the father. But I think that uh, certainly the actions of the neighbors are showing that we're past the tipping point and that uh, perhaps, you know, the president's actions are not aligned with what the um, general public, you know, the majority of the public want to see in terms of um, immigration policies, following due process, not violating the human rights of individuals who are fleeing violence. And, you know, certainly as a lawyer, I can say that we, you know, want at a minimum due process rights to be followed and also the provisions of the Immigration and Nationality Act to be followed um, at a minimum. And this president has taken a lot of actions and we see a lot of litigation in court, you know, invoking his national security powers and his wide discretion over immigration to um, go around what are some clear articulations of uh, law in terms of asylum seekers, you know, approaching the border and demanding asylum. I want to get into asylum seekers specifically in a moment, but let me start with, you mentioned as a lawyer, I imagine that as a lawyer, as a law professor, this is a a time of great change. Can you discuss in broad strokes the changes we've seen to immigration policy in terms of law, in terms of executive order, in terms of prosecutorial prerogatives that have happened in this administration, but also you said uh, this has been a problem for decades. What what is what has led us here in terms of those policies? Mm-hmm. I think first of all, uh, when the president first got in office, he you know passed the Muslim ban, and you know as an executive order, and in that he halted the processing of refugees, and so refugees are outside of the United States who have gone through detailed you know screening process 
to um, come to the United States other than like an asylum seeker who was at the border. And, you know, we see like a halt on, you know, individuals coming from Muslim majority countries coming into being able to come into the country if they had like a visa, uh, a prior visa to get here. And so I think that prior presidents have not used um, or used sparingly executive orders and executive action um, to uh, modify the immigration system. And, and so in doing that, um, the you know, president has attempted to change immigration laws. For example, in the most recent um, in January of uh, this year, the um, president, uh, by executive order again, instituted the migration protection protocols. And, you know, that policy, the main um, gist of the policy is that uh, immigrants have to, asylum seekers have to wait in Mexico for their uh, due process hearings. And it, we go a little bit. Right. It's called, it, colloquially, it's remain in Mexico, isn't it? It's exactly. The, 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 the nature of the policy. Exactly. You know, whereas the Immigration and Nationality Act says specifically that, you know, an individual can apply for asylum, you know, not just at a port of entry. This president has said that, you you know, you have to be at a port of entry to apply and then, you know, taking it a step forward has um, said that you, you know, no longer will be allowed to come into the United States and be, you know, bonded into the United States and be able to work with a, an immigration lawyer in the interior of the country while you go through your deportation or removal proceedings. That's something that, you know, the president has changed with the remain in Mexico policy. And certainly as an attorney, it raises due process concerns because before this president, we you know are aware that being in the immigration system without a counsel or a lawyer and applying for asylum puts a significant barrier to an individual obtaining asylum. You don't have someone to help you. You know, if you can imagine, there are multiple layers in a court system in terms of you know, understanding the system, understanding that it's an administrative court. And then you put on layer on top of that someone who does not speak English, speaks a different language, having to navigate that process. And then on top of that, now you have to wait in Mexico where you don't have access to attorneys. And you know, certainly there are multiple organizations across the country that are trying to get pro bono attorneys to volunteer or come up with creative ways for attorneys to be able to provide representation. But certainly it's an insurmountable task to attempt to represent in someone who is, you know, waiting outside of the United States for their asylum hearing. And you just mentioned the the policies. I know just this week there was a, uh, a court pushing back on these policies, saying that that's not going to be allowed. So this is very much in flux at every state of it. I want to go to, because I mentioned I wanted to get back to asylum seekers, because this is, I, I think, another misunderstanding that's used very often by this administration for political benefit is to ignore the prevalence of asylum seekers among those who are seeking entry into the United States. And you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation the demographics of the asylum seekers that for the, for the the surge, what the president keeps referring to as caravans. How has the the demographic makeup of people crossing the southern border changed in say the last thirty years? Because 
I imagine, the, you know, we always try to fight the last war in politics and punditry, but I imagine that the people who are coming over in the 90s and early 2000s, it's a different group of people. And how does that status reflect their different legal avenues for entry into the U.S.? I think you are correct that there are, you know, multiple, uh, there are different individuals that are seeking different things when they approach the border. Um, you know, I've been an immigration attorney and immigration professor, um, you know, since the early 2000s. And what I have seen over the course of uh, my career um, as an attorney is that the on the southern border, you have a large population of um, individuals from Central America. And that population over the years, I think in 2014, we saw a, a surge of unaccompanied minors that were approaching the border. And my area specifically is working with humanitarian immigrants. And I can say that um, a lot of the children are coming to the United States because they've been you know, targeted by a cartel or a gang. And you know, they've had family members who have been killed oh, and, and they have, their lives have been threatened. And you have know, talked to multiple um, mothers and parents and fathers, and they have said that you know they have no choice but to you know send their child to where they can ask for asylum at the border to safety because the alternative is that their child would be killed. And so you, we really you know over the years when I as I've been practicing have you know seen you know an increase. And individuals from, you know, Honduras has, you know, the highest um, murder uh, rate in the world, the country with the highest murder rate in the world. A lot of unaccompanied minors from Honduras. I've also worked on a lot of cases where women from Central America have experienced domestic violence. And, you know, up until this administration, it was a, you know, firm principle of the law, asylum law, that you could seek asylum as a victim of domestic violence if your government could not provide protection for you or was unwilling to provide protection for you. So, and I can also say, you know, back in December of 2018, past December, I traveled to the border with a couple of my students, law students and a divinity student at Vanderbilt, and we volunteered in Tijuana. And certainly, you know, when we were there, the demographics of the individuals were, you know, people, women and children and men from Central America. But what was surprising to me also was that there were a significant number of Haitian migrants and also um, some migrants from African countries that, you know, had traveled to, you know, the border. And, you know, we were interviewing individuals who uh, wanted to, you know, approach the border and apply for asylum. And so I think that, you know, they're, you know, they're Central Americans. That's definitely the main population. And then there are also, you know, other individuals from other countries, um, a significant Haitian population um, that is at the border, too. And for various reasons, you know, when I was there with my students, there was a woman who uh, was pregnant and, you know, was having, you know, medical issues until she wanted to apply for a humanitarian visa to enter the United States um, based upon her pregnancy. 
Um, and certainly you have people within that uh, demographic, too, that are coming to the United States to work. I think that one thing that we have to acknowledge in the conversation that, you know, there are you know push and pull factors that, um, get, you know, uh, that draw someone to um, migrate to the United States. And one of the um, pull factors is the ability to, you know, you know, work in the United States or, you know, being able to provide or send money back to your family. So there are, you know, multiple factors that um, impact, you know, why an individual, you know, migrates to the United States or makes that decision to approach the border. This is At the Table. I'm Jared Rizzi. Joining me is Carla McCanders, who's a professor at Vanderbilt University School of Law. Professor, I want to ask you about some of the changes. You mentioned due process earlier. This is not just for citizens. And I think that there's another example of uh, a common misconception that people who are on both sides of the uh, political divide tend to forget sometimes that due process isn't just for citizens and that uh, people trying to defend this administration will often argue that some of these changes began or were first implemented during the Obama years. Can you push back on some of the common misconceptions? Because I'm guessing that not just in your law classroom, but also in your, you know, in, in your work as an attorney and, and just in private conversations, you probably deal with these common misconceptions all the time. What are some of the things that you see in the discourse that just irk you or infuriate, depending on where you fall on the anger spectrum, I guess, how, how upset do you get when you see some of these easy misconceptions being made by professionals who should probably know better? Yeah, I think that most people, I think when you, we talk about due process, most people are unaware of you know the basic rights that immigrants have um, just because they are persons and um, under the Constitution, they are entitled to due process under the law. And so one of the things that um, most people don't understand in terms of changes, administration changes, and that you know the immigration court is an administrative law court. And so individuals that, are within the court, for example, the immigration judges, they report to the attorney general. And so some of the things that have um, taken place since this administration has come into office are, you know, the limitations on due process. Um, the immigration judges uh, past and, you know, current have often have been speaking up about their ability to um, maintain judicial independence over their courtroom. For example, right. um, there have been you know changes to what cases a judge can close out of their courtroom. For example, if I'm eligible to become a lawful permanent resident, um, another department, the Department of Homeland Security, um, may be able to uh, adjudicate or hear that application while. Um, it is in the immigration court. And so there have been some limitations on what um, a judge can close out from their docket. There have been limitations in the courtroom in terms of and criticisms of the fact that there are quotas that are now placed on immigration judges for, you know, how long a case progresses through the courtroom. Also, one major change that I mentioned before in terms of domestic violence victims being able to um, be granted asylum or refugee status 
has changed um, or is in flux, I should say, with a case called Matter of AB that you know had some procedural irregularity, irregularities in terms of how it got to the attorney general. The attorney general under the um, the Code of Federal Regulations can refer a case that's in the immigration court system to himself and make a decision on that case. And that's how the uh, law around domestic violence victims was changed. The attorney general referred a case from the Charlotte Immigration Court to himself and then generated an opinion that um, attempted to overturn some of the longstanding case law that governs uh, domestic violence victims being granted asylum. And so one of the key things that I think we all can agree on, and the American Bar Association president, um, you know, issued, has issued statements stating that, you know, immigrants are entitled to due process rights, uh, that, you know, access to our court system is one of the core principles of a democracy. And just because you are an immigrant or undocumented or, you know, an asylum seeker does not mean that you aren't entitled to, you know, due process rights or are, that our court systems are functioning um, appropriately and in accordance with the law. And so I think that most of the time when I speak with people, you know, uh, a lot of people, will, some people will say to me, you know, it was the same under the Obama administration. Obama was known as the deporter in chief. And, you know, I can state as an attorney who practices with my students in um, the immigration courts that, uh, you know, the due process and was at least there. And you knew that if you went to court, that there were going to be um, certain rules that were um, followed and applied within the court system. Stephen Miller and others in the Trump administration have let the mask slip somewhat, admitting that their goals include not just drastically reducing illegal immigration, but also legal immigration wholesale. In fact, I was in the White House briefing room back when I was a White House reporter uh, when he said the Statue of Liberty, when he said of the Statue of Liberty, the poem was added later. And that 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 phrase shook me then when I was in the room. It still makes me shake a little bit when I think about it. The idea that this is the uh, the desired effect from the Trump White House. What is the goal in your mind, both as someone who's uh, an attorney, a professor, an educator, but also someone who's just seeing this as a citizen of this country? What's the goal of this attitude, this policy from where you sit? Um, I think the goal definitely um, is tied to, in some ways, the changing demographics of the United States. And we know that there are projections that there will no longer be a um, white majority in the future. And I think that immigration is one thing that um, the president and those working with him have um, challenged because they you know, want to prevent the blackening and the browning of America. And, you know, immigration, the projections from different, uh, you know, the Pew Research Center has um, statistics out about the changing demographics of the United States. And, you know, the way our immigration system is structured, the president has, you know, wide authority over um, immigration. And then if you invoke national security, that is um, another way in which 
the president's executive actions or, you know, reforming the um, federal regulations. He can control who enters in our country, into our country. And, you know, certainly with targeting um, Central Americans or individuals on the southern border, or if we talk about the, you know, Muslim um, uh, band, um, you know, the travel band, one of the highest populations that's been impacted by that ban are, you know, Somali immigrants who are, you know, were living in the country in the United States. And um, they have experienced an increased, I think, a, a double um, deportation rate from the president's policies. And so I think that if you look at the president's statements, if we, you know, take a step back and look at uh, who is being, you know, impacted and targeted by the policies, it certainly is, you know, black and brown um, immigrants. When I think about, you mentioned Somali uh, immigrants and, and refugees, uh, the president, of course, has made a, a point to uh, uh, target one in particular, a woman who is a member of Congress and uh, getting a lot of pushback, the idea of going uh, back to where you came from. You know, this is, to me, to, to my perspective, and I'm not a historian, I'm certainly not a law professor as you are, this feels like the legacy of, of Dred Scott, uh, viewing uh, centuries of viewing dark skin as not belonging. I, I, I can only imagine, though, even in something that is just recently, uh, we saw just this week, uh, Francisco Irwin Galicia, he was born in Dallas, a United States citizen, detained by Customs and Border Protection, 23 days. He loses 26 pounds in just o just over three weeks, was not allowed to bathe himself. This is an American. Is this a bug or a feature of the Trump-era immigration change, these, these, these mistakes? Let's put them uh, charitably. Yeah, I, you know, definitely do not think that um, these are mistakes. I think they are intentional. Um, I think that if you look at, I think you have to look at when the president came into office and look at, you know, the broad body of what he has been doing through executive action from, you know, starting out with the travel ban, the Muslim ban, um, and it's, you know, the impact of that ban on, you know, communities of color, um, you know, Somali immigrants. And if you, we look at um, specifically the, the policies that have come out, you know, since the beginning of this year, we are, you know, targeting, you know, immigrants, brown immigrants coming from Central America, you know, many of whom have, you know, asylum uh, claims. And so I think that, you know, the, the race factor can't be ignored in the um, immigration policies. And I think that, you know, you have to we it's important that we continue to you know look at what's going on in the moment but then also place you know this administration's actions and immigration policies in the context of you know everything that it's done um over the uh, over the course of its time um, in office. My last question for you, Professor, is uh, about hope, because I imagine that you are looking at this, you've seen how it's changed, you're seeing what's uh, currently happening, and uh, I know that you've written, for example, about uh, the, the nature of citizenship and personhood, how our current immigration system reflects those questions uh, of the Jim Crow era. I imagine there's there's 
some contrast to be made, but also, uh, and I would like to read more of that uh, to, to see some of the, the comparisons because I'm sure they are stark. But what gives you hope at this point? Because we see there has been a reaction to the policies. A few things have made uh, people... Uh, mobilize and organize more than some of the bans that you have mentioned, like the the travel ban at the beginning of this administration. What is the hope for you? Is it a legislative hope that maybe Republicans and Democrats can agree on some kind of policy? Is there a generational hope? Uh, is there is there anything that you see that's bright at the end of this tunnel? I would definitely say, as a law professor, it is a generational hope. And, you know, working with young, motivated students, um, my students are, you know, interested. They want to learn about the immigration system. They want to not just learn. They want to um, help. They want to give. They want to volunteer. And so my hope is definitely, and one of the reasons why I became a law professor is to be a force multiplier, to, you know, educate my students about the immigration system, and then, you know, motivate them from, you know, practicing with them here in the, you know, Memphis Immigration Court to taking them to Tijuana. Um, The students at Vanderbilt also go and work in the detention facilities during their spring breaks. And so there are students who are motivated that, you know, are, you know, willing to go out and do the work. And, you know, over the course of my career as a law professor, that generational hope that I have, it extends beyond, you know, Republican and Democrat, because I've had, you know, students of various, you know, political backgrounds. And, you know, no matter what, you know, ideology, political ideology they stand in, you know, attorneys and future attorneys really believe in the court system. And, you know, when they see, you know, the court system failing, when they're trying to, you know, argue, make their first argument in court, um, or they see that the rules don't apply um, evenly and justly to everyone, you know, they get motivated and, you know, I have students out there that are like law professors now or, you know, working on Capitol Hill that, you know, call me and say, hey, the INA says this, but it's not being applied in this context. So, you know, I really have a lot of hope in, you know, the future future generation of lawyers and activists and um because people are, you know, ready for change, and I keep on keeping that in mind um, as I teach and as I, you know, practice immigration law. Well, I really appreciate you sharing some of your time, but also some of that force multiplication with us today, some of the education for our audience here at At the Table. Professor Carla McCanders at Vanderbilt University School of Law, thanks for spending some time with me today. Thank you. I appreciate it.